Okay, welcome back. Welcome, everybody, I should say. You know, this is a new week. You know, I'm, again, I just got out of the nursing home, and my day passes about over, so you have to bear with me. But this is Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. Uh, I'm Brent Kuhlman. I serve Trinity Lutheran Church uh, just north of Murdoch, Nebraska. I'm joined by pastors Adam Moline and Clint Poppy, and they serve Good Shepherd in Lincoln. Greetings, gentlemen. Good to be back with you. Yeah, good to be with you again. Yes, these are uh, these are fun, and we're figuring each other out. And I'm not the uh, techno nerd that uh, our previous associate pastor was, so you have to bear with me in uh, running the controls. Yeah, here that's too. correct. You are no techno nerd, that is for sure. Just a regular nerd, right? <laughs> that's right. And that in that regard, join the club. Well, folks, I, I hope this has been helpful for you as you listen into these programs. We've been uh, just doing a fly-by the Ten Commandments. Eventually, we'll do some specifics. I mean, we started a couple of weeks ago on the First Commandment when we read some parts from Daniel and et cetera. But, you know, it, when you talk about the Ten Commandments, there's always lots to talk about. And so last week, we were talking about the, uh, the first use, and then we were talking about the second use. First use, of course, uh, the curb or damage control, 1 Timothy 1. Second use, the theological use, where God shows us our sin, a mirror, if you will, the CAT scan or the MRI machine uh, from Romans 3. And uh, we were, we were uh, talking about that second use a lot, and we were, we were trying again to make the point that the law doesn't save us. That is exceptionally clear from Scripture. So we, we were critiquing the, the, the m- main Protestant f- fundamental presupposition and it's this, that God wouldn't tell you to do something unless you could keep it. And that's always applied to whatever in Scripture, but in particular the Ten Commandments. And then the Ten Commandments become the, the tool by which you're saved. Now, so we were gonna, I'm going to make a proper distinction here along this line. Proper distinction? Yeah. That's a, that's a good term. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to use the Hegelian terminology that uh, a lot of Lutherans like to use today. I'm going to stick with the old Lutheran way, making proper distinctions. Uh, what's the new What's the new way of talking about the instead of the proper distinction between the law and the gospel? What is it? What do they say now? <laughs> you're oh, looking at the, the, the two types of righteousness. No, no, is no. That what you're looking I at, shouldn't or? even have brought this up because I didn't prepare you for this. But uh, the, the the whole language of the proper distinction has been lost. But that's a whole nother day. So let's make a proper distinction with regard to what we're talking about. Okay. When it we we cannot keep the Ten Commandments for salvation. That's, a, that's one thing you got to keep under control. Again, God shows us our sin through them. And the book of Galatians is absolutely clear in that regard. Yeah, as well as, as Romans and all of all of the scriptures. But, it, but on the other hand, for people who are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ, they, that I'm talking about the new man, the believer, not the old Adam here. I'm talking about the believer. We're both old Adam and new man. All at the same time, but I'm talking specifically about the new man, the faither, the truster. The Holy Spirit has created a new heart, and uh, it's a new creation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And so, therefore, God has another use of his law. And that's for the law to be kept in this life for the sake of serving the neighbor. And Paul, Paul addresses this. Uh, so does Jesus, you know. What's the greatest of the commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Paul in Romans 13 tells, tells us that, uh, that uh, love is the fulfillment of the law. So again, the distinction is this. When it comes to salvation, keeping the law is not the game. But when it comes to serving the neighbor, that is to say, the one who is saved by Christ alone, who is the new creation, spelled F-I-I-T- F-A-I-T-H, the believer in Christ 
God's good use of this believer is to be instructed to do good works according to God's will to help people who need your love. Now, does that make sense, guys? Yeah, uh, this is the uh, prayer that we pray at the end of uh, every divine service after the Lord's Supper, uh, that this uh, Lord's Supper might strengthen us in faith towards God and in fervent love towards one another. And that is the the third use of the law, which is where I think you're going, right? Yeah. Um, that uh, uh, because we are Christians, we do Christian things. That's our identity. We live the way God wants us to as far as our faith life goes. Uh, and we see this played out in all sorts of ways. Most, you know, I'm from North Dakota here the last eight, eight, eight years. And uh, when someone passed away, you'd go into their house and their their family and their friends from all the town would be there. There'd be food sitting everywhere. Everybody would be showing love and compassion to this person in their time of need. That's the third use of the law. They're not being saved by their work. They're not finding their salvation in care for the person in need. But instead, they're doing it because they have genuine concern, and they are being, in a way, uh, God's compassion and mercy to them. So, Clint, just to be clear here, what we're saying is the law doesn't motivate us to do these things. But what, what does? The bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. We love because he, Christ, loved us. We serve because he, Christ, serves us. And so the cross and empty tomb the gospel, are our motivation for these good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2, verse 10. And so the law, uh, you you hear this this often when uh, the the pews are a little bit empty or the collection plates are are a little bit light. You know, pastor, if you preach a little more law, you know, more people come to church, more money go on the collection plate. And maybe the people do need to hear the law with regard to proper stewardship and the third commandment. But the law may change a behavior for a short period of time. But the law will never change or improve a heart. Only the gospel can do that. And what the people need there is the gospel, full dose, unadulterated, pure and simple. They need the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit can have their way with them and change their heart, their faith toward God, and their love toward one another. Uh, this, this proper distinction with regard to how the law and the gospel work in, a, in uh, a believer's life is absolutely critical, critical for the preacher and critical for the hearer as well. And I, I'm always even a little nervous saying uh, that the gospel is a motivator. The gospel is the thing that forgives all of our sins. It's the thing that sets us free to be Christians and to live that Christian identity. And, and even I've heard uh, in conversation with, uh, for example, Mormons, uh, what's the reason that a Mormon wants to be a good person? Well, they, they're motivated by uh by their faith, uh, to not sin as much so that Jesus doesn't have to suffer as much. And and that's, I always get nervous saying it's a motivation, and maybe it's just a terminology thing. I, I agree with a lot of what you said, just not the phrase uh, motivation there. And that's okay. I, I think that's a good thing to say. So if we, could, if we could improve on how we talk about this, maybe the better way to say it would be it's the gospel that is, the gospel itself creates the new heart. The gospel is 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 the the power of not only salvation, but it is also the power 
that creates F-A-I-T-H-E-R-S, faithers, that then actually want to do what God says in his word, in particular the Ten Commandments, right? Right. right. I'd say um, when we are finding our salvation completely and totally in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen— the Ten Commandments identify or define who we are as Christians. It's our identity um, as as Christians to keep those Ten Commandments. But once we start saying, um, you know, you have to do this or that, all of a sudden we're 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 getting the stick back out and beating the donkey to keep going forward. Um, and so it's this very fine line that we walk when we talk about the third use of the law, which is why I think there's so many. Um, arguments and disagreements about it today because you have to walk a very, very fine line. Well, the distinction we're making is that when it comes to salvation, the keeping of the law doesn't count. Right. But when it comes to serving the neighbor in love, God has given us a clear word, Ten Commandments, on how he wants to use us through the power of his gospel to help people who need our love. And so the believer, like King David in Psalm 119, says, teach me, O Lord. See, this is what the believer says. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, and then I will keep them to the end. Now, David isn't saying this so that he can get saved. David is, he's, the believer prays that the Lord will continue to teach him so that he can keep these commandments for the sake of serving the neighbor in love. Right. And these are the distinctions we're trying to make. All 180 verses of Psalm 119 are a beautiful example of the third use of the law. God applying his law to the sinner who is at the same time a saint, struggling with issues, battling that old Adam, thinking maybe that old Adam is really a friend when the old Adam needs to die, needing to be instructed because it doesn't come natural what to do, how to live, how to treat our neighbor, how to treat our God, how to live in this F-A-I-T-H. All of Psalm 119 is a beautiful example of this third use of the law. Pastor, I want to ask you a question. Why is it that so many Lutherans will qualify themselves when they're talking about this topic? And they qualify themselves this way. They will say, well, the so-called third use of the law, as if the third use of the law isn't real or is an open question and up for debate. Uh, How would you respond to somebody who would talk about the so-called third use of the law? Is it it real or not? It's absolutely real. It's, It's exactly what the scriptures teach, like you just said, Psalm 119. Um, Psalm 1 as well, if you will. Um, yeah, the, so, the, that language of so-called third use of the law, if a Lutheran says that, that most likely you're dealing with a Lutheran who contends that Luther never taught a third use of the law. And that's categorically false. So that's what you're dealing with. And this, this is one of the sad episodes in the history of Lutheranism after the Reformation. But it's, it's absolutely false. Luther did teach a third use. You can read all, sermon after sermon of Luke where he uses this, okay, constantly. Well, um, Walther, Gerhardt, Luther, Chemnitz, um, you read all of the Orthodox Lutheran fathers, and many, many of their sermons are preserved. 
And they are dripping with exhortation to the faithful. They are dripping with what some people would call preaching sanctification, which is nothing other than the third use of the law. So it's everywhere. If I may, in the 20th century, this is where this language really becomes commonplace, a so-called third use. These These are Lutheran theologians who... Their, their theological enemy, for lack of better terms, were Calvinists. And let's not forget that John Calvin taught a third use, but taught it differently than the scriptures do. And so you, you had a lot of Lutherans, especially in Europe, in Germany. So, for example, um, Werner Ehlert, uh, whose, one of his main theological opponents was the Reformed theologian Karl Barth. And, of course, Karl Barth was a Calvinist and a full-blown Calvinist on the wrong teaching of the third use of the law. And so Ehlert, in responding to this, then denies a third use, you see. That's, Fall, that's, falls off the horse yes. into the other ditch. So that, that's what I'm trying to do in answering your question. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, it, it, is, it is very helpful. And uh, I, think, I think we need to be very clear. We need to, you know, as bad as it is to disagree with the Orthodox Lutheran fathers, uh, we disagree with Holy Scripture. Right. You cannot read any of Paul's epistles without seeing a clear law, gospel, Third use, or I believe paranesis, is the term, that exhortation to holy living, especially in the book of Romans. And so to to deny that or to say there is uh, some sort of a uh, question about whether the third use of the law exists, that is downright foolishness. If, if I may, Clint, you know, connecting, we're, we're about out of time, I realize this, but we'll pick this up after the break. Romans 6, that we've been buried with Christ in baptism into his death, in order and be re- and raised up to live a what kind of life? New life. Let's pick that up after the break. Welcome back, everybody. Again, this is Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. And I mean that. This is your healthy theological radio addiction. I'm here with Pastor Poppy and Pastor Moline. My name is Pastor Kuhlman. Um, we, right before the break, we alluded to Romans 6, where Paul says that we've been buried with Christ into his death, and we've been raised with him in his resurrection in holy baptism in order to live a new life. So part of, part of what it means to live as a Christian is to do battle against your sin. So not only to believe in Jesus for salvation, but the believer, with, the, with the, uh, the help of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, then will do battle against the old sinful flesh. And that's how Paul picks this up in Romans, etc. I think, and by the way, that's holy living, folks. Do you realize that? Holy living is when you're, when you're tempted to sin and through the help of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, and both go together there, I'm not separating or divorcing the two, uh, that's holy living because then you're, you're learning how to live according to his word and not yours. And that's why the, the commandments are so important here when we talk about third use. Holy living is lived according to God's word. And so the Ten Commandments, they are whose words? God's. God's. And let's not forget, I think we've talked about this before, but let's just, it's, it's worth mentioning again, that God holies things and people and places and times through his word. 
And the Ten Commandments are God's holy word. So holy living, third use, is when you live according to his word. Now, again, the, the proper distinction is we're, we're, we're sinners and we're saints at the same time. So what I'm talking specifically here is the believer. The believer wants to lead a holy life according to God's word. Again, Psalm 119, other parts of scripture. All right. So the, I hope this is helpful for all of us, this, this overview of the commandments. So we keep all this straight. One final thing, if I may, unless you guys have more on this, is let's repeat that these are uses that God has. And that he does these things. He curbs, he mirrors, he guides through his word, the Ten Commandments. And it's his work, and we're not in control of it, right? Amen, amen. Pastor, uh, you know, you're talking about this saint-sinner dichotomy or whatever. Not every church body is able to articulate the two natures of a sinner, this simultaneously uh, saint and sinner, simul justus et peccator. And my question for you is, is it possible to properly distinguish between the law and the gospel? Is it possible to properly distinguish between the three uses of the law? if you do not have a proper understanding of the Christian being at the same time saint and sinner. No, you cannot. And that's, that's just patently obvious. Uh, for example, Roman Catholic theology denies the simul, namely that we are at the same time sinner and saint. That's been dissolved. And so therefore the law becomes the instrument of salvation. So there's no proper distinction. And the Protestants have done the same thing. The simul has been dissolved. So therefore, what becomes the instrument of salvation? My keeping of the law. Check it out, folks. Listen to the sermons. Uh, again, I'll use, uh, I'm, everybody's going to, all the Missouri Assembly Lutherans who are listening to this program now are going to quit listening after while I say this next thing. I guarantee it. Okay? But I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to give you an example of how a Protestant doesn't do this properly and then diminishes Jesus. So Billy Graham, who died recently, would, would preach a great law gospel sermon. Every time he did a crusade, he would point out how bad of sinners we are, and he was right. And because of our sin, we need a Savior. And then he would preach Jesus, who died and rose again for our salvation. And that was, woohoo! you're exactly right, Billy. But he couldn't stop himself because he believed, he believed in, a, in a mythical theological creature, a mythical Bigfoot a mythical Sasquatch, a mythical Loch Ness Monster, a mythical unicorn called Free Will. And so everything that he said about us being a sinner, us being saved by Jesus, then he took away by saying, now you, all, you folks all need to come down front and you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Exercise your free will. Because you're not saved until you make Jesus the Lord and Master of your life. And see, this is where this all leads. He, t he took everything away, what he just preached. But seriously, th this is where a lot of Missouri Senate people can't diagnose what was wrong with Billy Graham. Uh, I was told when I was young, uh, go ahead and watch Billy Graham. Five minutes before the program is over, turn off the TV. That's how yeah, my pastor right. mm -hmm. that protected me from Billy Graham. Um, but... You know, Pastor, you know, you said everybody's going to stop listening to you now because you said something <laughs> critical of Billy Graham. Well, he's maybe, seriously, 
I'm, I'm an old man. You're an old man. We've lived through this. He, I'm speaking in general to make my point, he was the chief theologian of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate as far as lay people were concerned. I, I think he was in everybody's home through the television. And uh, you, you may be correct with people 50 and over, but there are new right. Billy Graham right. type evangelists that are out there, and one that has swept the United States, and I began. I believe he began in Brazil, is a gentleman by the name of Louis Palu, yeah. or Palau, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name. He is in everybody's home now through the internet, through Facebook, through YouTube. There are scores of new Billy Graham type people that give you a wonderful how salvation was accomplished sermon. And then fumble with regard to how salvation is delivered. And I think that is uh, that, that uh, diagnosis is a good one to keep in mind, too. Maybe to go back to this uh, symbol used to set for Cotter, uh, you know, we Lutherans do believe in that and we uphold it. And it is something that outsprings from our teaching on baptism, uh, that because we're a baptized Christian, that uh, every day our uh, new Adam drowns our old Adam uh, in the waters of holy baptism. What, what's or, your first name, Pastor? Williams? Yeah, that's it's my uh, the most humbling part. My <laughs> first name is Adam, and uh, I've, I've baptized uh, three of my children, three of the four, and every time I'm holding the baby up there by the baptismal font and I say, all of the sin which they have inherited from Adam, and my wife looks at me with this grin like, you're to blame. <laughs> uh, but uh, that uh, sinful nature gets drowned every single day uh, in the waters of holy baptism. And uh, that new nature then is the one that wants to live that life of faith and to serve the neighbor like we've kind of been talking about. And so I think we'd be remiss to uh, talk about this topic without being reminded of baptism and how that creates that uh, that war, that battle within us where uh, we still have that sinful nature and we have that uh, uh, faithful nature and the two are fighting within us all the time. Right. So that's very helpful. Now let's let's uh, just do one more thing on this review kind of thing. So when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we divide the Ten Commandments into two parts. Commandments 1 through 3, and then Commandments 4 through 10. And so those of you who are catechized, you learn those as the two tables of the law, right? Correct. Okay. Now, Commandments 1 through 3, I'm going to put you on the spot, pastors, either one you could talk. Commandments 1 through 3 have to do with your relationship to who? God. Are you sure about that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, <laughs> with all your soul, with all your mind, yeah. and with all your strength. And then Jesus teaches word. us right. that uh, that is the summary. He, he calls it the first and greatest commandment. Right. The summary of the first table of the law. Quotes from Deuteronomy. Correct. Thank you. That, I'm just playing with you there when I do yeah, that. Yeah, well, I, lo- the, this is the, uh, I love the banter back and So, forth. Moline, commandments 4 through 10, they have to do with our relationship to who? They describe our relationship with our neighbor, the people who live around us. And even Jesus goes into detail about who our neighbor is. And that's uh, any person uh, that we come into contact with or that lives in the world that we can help uh, or care for in some way, fashion, or form. Okay, we'll talk more about the the second table later as we progress in our program. But let's go back to the first table. So in the first commandment, God wants something from us. He does. He wants something. He wants our heart. And that what I mean by that is that's faith. He wants us to trust in him alone. 
He'll take care of us. We talked in a previous episode from Mark 10 about Jesus and the rich young man. Jesus was simply saying to this guy, oh, okay, you keep the commandments? All right, let's see if you can keep the first one, okay? Sell everything, give it to the poor, come follow me. And I think in some of the, uh, some of the translations, it's take up your cross even and follow me in Mark's account. But nonetheless, I'll take care of you. I'm God for you, rich young man. I'll take care of you even if you have nothing. Liquidate everything. Sell it all. And he wouldn't do it. Turned his back. So in the first commandment, God wants our heart. heart. He wants our trust. Second commandment, what body part does he want, Moline? I would say our, uh, our lips, our mouth, our, uh, our confession, whatever we speak, uh, ought to reflect the faith that's in our heart. Right. So heart, when the heart's right, that is to say when the heart trusts God and his promises, then you will use your mouth properly. Okay, And when you're a believer, and now we'll talk about the third commandment, what body part does he want you to use properly in the third commandment, Poppy? Ears. Right, ears. Ears. Remember the <laughs> Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Uh, what does this mean? You know, we should fear love, uh, fear and love God, again, taking us back to the first commandment, right. that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Right. So what... So, the word comes into my body through my ears. Right. Now, that piggybacking on what we've talked about for weeks now, when you study the small catechism on the commandments, you've got all three uses going on. Amen. And Luther did this on purpose. But the chief thing, of course, is to show us our sin. Uh, but all three uses are being done in the small catechism. So, first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And we looked at Daniel... Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We looked at Daniel himself when he was thrown into the den of lions, etc., to, to exhibit that uh, these people kept the first commandment even if they were threatened with their life. Uh, in connection with that, Jesus, of course, with the first commandment, he is the head of a new humanity. I can't remember we've talked about this. If we have, let's, let's do it. Adam, <laughs> I'm talking about the Genesis 3 Adam, but the Genesis 3 Adam, he's the head of a humanity. But what kind of humanity? A fallen humanity. A condemned humanity before God, right? So what does God do? He sends a second and a last Adam. It's his son, Jesus Christ. And through our Lord Jesus Christ and his complete and total faith in his Father and in his Father's word, Jesus then is the second and the last Adam. He is now the head of a new humanity, which is now the church, believers in him. So that's another example, if you will, of first commandment in action. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the prophet Daniel. But they all point to someone else who's coming, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who keeps the first commandment perfectly in our place. And uh, because we don't keep it, he takes the damnation that we deserve for for our sin, right? right? And and not only takes the damnation, but he absolves us of our sin <laughs> right. through his resurrection from the dead. I know CFW Walther was uh, you know the first president of the Missouri Senate and all that, but CFW Walther in his Easter preaching would always emphasize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the great absolution, the great declaration that your sins are forgiven through the life, death, and resurrection 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And I don't think we can emphasize that enough, Pastor. And why is that, Pastor Poppy? Because we, by nature, want to absolve ourselves. Oh, yeah. I hear this a lot as a pastor when people get into trouble in their life. You name the sin, whatever it is. And they'll always say to me, you know, I've got to learn to forgive myself. <laughs> and, you know, that people have heard that so much that you, pastoral care for these folks, you've got to essentially say, you know what? Why don't you trust somebody else's word? And it's Christ. He forgives you. That's all you need to hear. One of the one of the things that I did recently with one of our members here at Good Shepherd, hope she's listening, is uh, she made the comment, uh, "Oh, Pastor, I know Jesus forgives me, but I just don't know if I can forgive myself." And I looked at her and I said, with love in my heart, "Who do you think you are? You are more stingy with the forgiveness of sins than our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's a good way to Who say it. do you think you are?" And the look on her face. And then I gave her a big hug. And I said, I only said it that way because I love you. But you need to rid yourself of that kind of thinking and that kind of talk. So, Malene, have you forgiven yourself yet? <laughs> you know, every uh, week at church, I hear the forgiveness. Uh, we make in private confession absolution as well and hear the forgiveness of Jesus. And uh, it's a word of Jesus that speaks a better word than I could ever speak myself. Amen to that. Thanks be to God that Jesus died and rose for us and that the preaching of the gospel tells us that you're forgiven for Christ's sake. We'll talk to you again next week. Stay Lutheran, my friends. Well,